Well, hello and welcome everyone to Grace, everyone joining us online and at our locations, Saratoga, Half Moon, and Latham. We're really glad that you're here. Hey, maybe you're new to this series and um, you might want to know we're addressing some of the big questions of life. And boy, there are a lot of those, would you agree? I mean, all kinds of questions that really are game changers, depending on how we answer those. And that's what we've been looking at in this series but today, we come to one that I believe is, is certainly at the very heart of the Christian faith. How believable is the resurrection? I'm going to read to you a quote from a scholar, a highly respected scholar named Michael Green, and he says, Christianity does not hold the resurrection to be one among many tenets of belief. Without faith in the resurrection, there would be no Christianity at all, he writes. The Christian church would never have begun, and the Jesus movement would have fizzled. Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once you disprove it, you have disposed of Christianity. Now, I wonder what you think about Michael Green's quote. And I would also be curious as to how you actually feel about that. Because I think you'll agree, he's being pretty, pretty stark there in his evaluation of the resurrection. I mean, it is crucial, according to Michael Green. Well, I believe that the Apostle Paul would heartily agree with Dr. Green's assessment. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. In other words, people like me who preach as one of the things we do, it, we just need to get another job. We need to get another focus, another purpose. For our lives. That's how crucial the resurrection is. And Christians throughout many centuries now have contended that anyone who comes to this question of is the resurrection believable with an unbiased mind and with their mind open to reason and with their heart ready and open for understanding can come to the conclusion that Jesus was indeed raised from the dead. By the way, those of you who wonder, does the Bible teach this? Well, clearly it does. All four of the gospel accounts, for instance, in the Bible attest to the resurrection of Jesus. Let me just read you one brief account from Luke's gospel, chapter 24, starting in verse 4. While they were wondering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the women bowed down with their faces to the ground, but the men said to them, oh, I love this line. This is an awesome line, one of my favorites in all the Bible. Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee? The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and on the third day be raised again. 
Now, if a belief is that crucial, as you would imagine, people who don't like Christianity have really pointed some of their most vehement attacks against the resurrection. And so that's why we're taking a, a, a day to look at this belief. And by the way, I would highly recommend that you read some of the materials in the bibliography. I, I'm going to recommend one chapter in particular. There's one book there called Know Why You Believe by Paul Little, one of my favorites of all time. And chapter four in that book deals specifically with the resurrection. And I think Paul Little does a great job there. But when critics attack the resurrection, they typically bring four objections to it. And I want us to quickly look at these four objections today. And, and I'm convinced that no matter where you are on the journey of faith, no matter what your belief, this will be good information for you to kind of unpack. Because if you're an unbeliever, you need to really know what the objections are and what the counterpoint to them is. If you're a believer, I'm also convinced that this is vital information for you because if the resurrection is as critical as Michael Green says it is, as the Apostle Paul says it is, then certainly we need to know what we believe and why we believe it. We need to know why we believe the resurrection is real. So here they are, the four most common objections. Number one is that the body was stolen. Now, this happens to be perhaps the oldest, the oldest objection to the resurrection. I'm reading now from Matthew's gospel, chapter 28. It says, while the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priest everything that had happened. When the chief priest had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you are to say, hey, his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. The first objection to the resurrection is that, look, the body has been stolen. Now, that is so implausible that Matthew doesn't even bother to refute it. And this whole idea that the soldiers fell asleep is incredibly unlikely, by the way, an ancient Roman soldier named Justinian wrote in his digest that any soldier caught sleeping at his post, any soldier caught deserting his post was put to death. And Justinian said, not only is he put to death, he's put to death by burning. Now, you're rational people, right? You're rational people. If you're a soldier, are you going to go to sleep? I mean, I don't think there's a chance you're going to sleep at your post. And yet the theory of a stolen body persists. So let's look at it briefly. I would say there are three possibilities commonly given for who could have stolen the body. 
Three possibilities. Let's look at two of them together. One would be the Roman government, and the second, the Jewish authorities. Now, we'll look at them together because I think these two groups would potentially have the same goal. Both the Roman Roman government and the Jewish authorities would have the goal of wanting to eliminate or discredit this young Christian movement. So if that's their goal, why would they steal the body and not show the body? I mean, they would have absolutely no motive for stealing the body and concealing it. In fact, hear me, They would have loved to produce the body of Jesus. You know why? Because the moment they could produce his dead body, they would immediately crush this new growing movement called Christianity. If they could have produced the body of Jesus, they would, because it would have stopped Christianity in its tracks and saved them a lot of headaches later on. So I think it's obvious, it's really clear that neither the Roman government nor the Jewish authorities stole the body. They would have absolutely no reason to do so. That leaves us with another possibility, the disciples. Maybe the disciples secretly somehow stole the body. Wow. Now, if that's the truth, they must have been thinking, hey, we're going to steal the body, and then we're going to claim that the body was resurrected, and then we're going to have the unspeakable privilege of living as penniless evangelists, wandering around for the rest of our lives, beaten, whipped, thrown in jail, put to death. Any questions? That is bizarrely ridiculous. All of the disciples were willing to die for the belief that Jesus died from the dead. In fact, of the remaining 11 disciples, minus Judas Iscariot, who betrayed Christ, of the 11 that remained, 10 of them were put to death for the belief that Jesus was resurrected and alive, and most of them were killed in very slow and excruciating ways. And yet, not one of them recanted. Not one of them backed down on their testimony that Jesus was alive, even though to deny that would have immediately meant their release and freedom. Now, some may object and say, well, Pastor Rex, hey, don't people die all their time for their beliefs? Don't they die all the time for things that are not true? Interesting question. Muslim extremists may get in a truck and fill it with explosives and drive it into a crowd and blow up and kill a bunch of people, or terrorists of some kind may hijack of airplane and fly it into a building. Yes, people die for their faith all the time. But what's the difference here? People, devout people, will die for their faith if they believe it's true. But people will not die for their faith if they know it to be false. Big 
difference. Disciples would not have died if they knew this belief about Jesus rising was false. People just don't do that. And so the disciples are so certain of his resurrection, they're willing to die for that belief. When at any time, while being tortured to death, they could have just said, just kidding, (laughs) we made it up. Hey, let me out of here. But none of them did. Obviously, they were willing to die for the belief that Jesus was raised from the dead. But that's the first objection. Someone stole the body. A second common objection is that the disciples went to the wrong tomb. Now, I can see a sort of men versus women thing going on here. For instance, when Mary and the other women came back from the tomb and said his body is gone, I can imagine Peter and some of the other male disciples going, yeah, it goes, it goes it just, it's just a real thing. Women can't follow directions to save their lives. They went to the wrong tomb. And on the other hand, I can imagine the women kind of joking about the men. When Peter, John, the others didn't find the body, I can imagine, you know, the women going, yeah, they'll never stop and ask for directions. I'll tell you that. Or that's why they went to the wrong tomb. Yikes. But this line of thinking sort of goes like this. Look, they're exhausted. They've been through a lot. Their emotions are frazzled. They're physically just tanked out. And you know how prone to error you can be when you're in that state. So they're still half asleep. They saw this empty tomb. It looked like the tomb of Jesus. The tomb was empty. And they immediately jumped to the rash but erroneous conclusion that he was raised from the dead and the rest is history. (laughs) Well, there's two major problems with that theory. One is that this was not an obscure execution. It was huge news in Jerusalem. There were big crowds. And Joseph of Arimathea, who actually owned the tomb that Jesus was buried in, he certainly was involved in the burial, and he would have definitely pointed out they had gone to the wrong tomb. But there's a second, even more serious problem with this theory of a wrong tomb. If this was the wrong tomb, you know what that means? There was a right tomb. There was a right tomb. That means that there was a body somewhere, and the Roman authorities and the Jewish leaders could have easily gone to the correct tomb, produced the body, and crushed the growing Christian movement. And yet... The theory of going to the wrong tomb somehow has been one of those that's been commonly proposed as an objection to the resurrection. There's a third one. Let's look at it briefly. The supposed eyewitnesses were simply hallucinating. They were just hallucinating. They didn't really see the risen Christ. They didn't see his body. They didn't really experience this in in. in In time and space, it was really a hallucination. It was all in their minds. Now, go with me. The reasoning on this goes like this. They had such anticipation of the resurrection of Jesus, it was sort of a wish fulfillment. No, they didn't steal the body. No, they didn't go to the wrong tomb. 
But after Jesus died, they missed him so badly. They just hallucinated and thought that they saw him alive. Well, this theory is extremely unlikely for at least three reasons. Number one, hallucinations are not group events. Well, let me correct that. With the exception of Woodstock, just south of here, hallucinations are not group events, all right? This would be as ridiculous as me saying, hey, do you guys remember that dream I had last night? What? No, of course you don't. Hallucinations and dreams and things that, like that are not group events. Events. One psychologist said that having 500 people have exactly the same hallucination at the same time is a greater miracle than the resurrection itself. Hallucinations aren't group events. But a second problem is that the disciples were not expecting Jesus to be raised in the first place. Even though he had talked about it, even though he had given evidence that he would be, even though he had made statements, they didn't get that yet. Mary doesn't go to the tomb expecting to see a risen Jesus. She went to the tomb expecting a dead body, remember? She was going to anoint the body. I mean, come on, do you think Thomas expected to see him alive? No way. Thomas was a brutal realist. He's not going to be prone to wish fulfillment. Thomas knows that Jesus was stone cold dead, and frankly, he does not expect to see him alive again. A third challenge, though, with the theory of hallucination is that Jesus appeared to both believers and unbelievers alike. Why is that important? Because you might be willing to convince some people that, yeah, well, maybe believers kind of dream something up in their mind, but not unbelievers, not skeptics, not scoffers. So look with me at this passage. It'll be on the screens. It's probably, arguably, one of the most, the most important passage on the resurrection in all the Bible. 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what Paul writes. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. Catch this part. After that, he appeared to more than, wow, 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and then Paul writes, and last of all, he appeared to me also, as to one abnormally born. Did you notice that little phrase, most of whom are still living? Paul's going, look, you don't want to believe me? Cool. You don't want to believe my eyewitness testimony because he had had this revelation, this epiphany of Christ on the Damascus road when he was struck blind for a matter of days? You don't want to believe me? Listen, go right down the road. Talk to John, Mary, Joe, right down the road. They'll tell you what they saw and heard. Most of them are still alive. All you got to do is go and sit down and have some tea with them, and they'll be glad to witness to you about the risen Christ. This is real. It really happened, Paul is saying. 
And listen to what Luke writes in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. After his suffering, that is after Jesus' suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. But pastor, did he appear just to believers? No, no, no. He appeared to James also, according to the passage we just looked at a moment ago. Verse 7, then he appeared to James. Do you know who James was? James was the half-brother of Jesus. Nowhere in the New Testament does it even hint that James was a follower of Jesus or a believer in Jesus before the resurrection. In fact, the evidence would suggest that James, before the resurrection, thought that his brother Jesus was a little bit crazy, quite frankly. Now, I have three brothers and three sisters, all older than me, but I wonder how many of you, I have three of them, three brothers, how many of you have at least one brother? Would you just raise your hand up high, please? Hold it up for just a moment. Wow, it's a lot of people. A lot of you have a brother. Now, let me ask you, keep it up for a moment, just a moment. If your brother, all of you have a brother, if your brother came to you and said, I am the unique son of the living God, keep your hand up if you would believe him. I didn't think so. Nor would I, nor did James. Some of you would be willing to crucify your brother, <laughs> but you would not believe he was the unique son of God. So what changed James' mind about this? One thing had the power to change his mind. He knew that Jesus had died stone cold dead, and he saw him raised from the dead alive again. That was a game changer for the brother of Jesus, and his life was never the same. So if the body wasn't stolen, if they went to the correct tomb, if it was not a hallucination, here's that fourth objection. Jesus didn't really die, but he simply kind of fainted or passed out or swooned and was later revived. Now, this theory began to be proposed strongly in the 1800s. It states that, that Christ was just in shock, basically. He went into sort of a semi-coma, and when they took him off the cross and put him in the tomb, the dampness and coolness of the tomb and the aroma of the spices sort of served as an aromatherapy that kind of revived him again. And so he came out of the grave, and the disciples assumed that he had been resurrected when, in fact, he had never actually died. That's the objection. Dr. Hugh Schoenfield wrote a book that was very popular in the 1960s called The Passover Plot. Let me give you the cliff notes on the book. Dr. Schoenfield said that Jesus hoodwinked everybody. He tricked them all. He planned his own arrest. 
He cleverly manipulated his own trial. He cleverly planned his own crucifixion. He purposely drugged himself to make it appear as though he had died. And then when his body was placed in the tomb, as the drugs began to wear off, the coolness of the tomb revived him. He moved the massive stone. He came out and told everyone that he was the Messiah. He hoodwinked them all, and they all believed him. Wasn't he a clever little guy? That's the essence of the plot. Now, again, I I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know how that line of thinking strikes you, but there are two really, and I mean fatal, flaws in that theory. The first is that the medical evidence disproves it outright. Eyewitnesses at the time that this Roman centurion thrust his spear into Jesus' body as he was hanging on the cross. You remember the Gospels have this detail? And it says that gushing out of his body were two things. You remember? Water and blood. Water and blood. Well, we know from our modern medical understanding that it was the pericardium, this fibrous sac that surrounds the heart that was punctured by the spear. And during the crucifixion, the pericardium, the sac around the heart, would be filled with fluid. And so the spear pierced the pericardium and then the heart chamber itself, causing this pericardial effusion. That's why the account says water and blood came out. The fluid from the pericardium, the blood from the heart. So medically, the evidence would say Jesus was dead without a doubt. But let's let's forget that. Let's just put that aside. Let's forget the medical evidence for a moment. And just for the sake of argument, (laughs) let's just assume Jesus didn't really die. Let's assume this theory is true. Think about that for a minute with me now. That would mean that Jesus successfully survived a severe beating and loss of blood that killed over 50% of the victims before they ever made it to the cross. That would mean that Jesus was crucified, losing far more blood. That would mean that the thrust of the spear, which the gospel accounts clearly give, into his side, draining more blood, puncturing his heart. He somehow escaped that. He somehow survived that, even though he's got this gaping wound that's bleeding out. And if this theory is true... It would mean he survived entombment with 75 pounds of spices on his already weakened body. He survived for three days with no food or water. He woke up without any medical assistance whatsoever, having lost most of his blood with no water or liquids for at least three days. He stood up in his mummy-like grave clothes wound tightly around him, which now would be hardened like a plaster around his body. He moved this massive stone away and then overpowered four highly trained Roman guards carrying shields, daggers, and javelins. 
And then he walked seven miles to Emmaus on feet that had been pierced with nails and convinced everyone that he was just fine and alive from the dead. Any questions, anybody? I don't know about you. I'm just being honest. It takes me more faith to believe that than the resurrection itself, quite honestly. So we just looked at the four common objections, the most common ones, to the resurrection. So what are we left with? If the body was not stolen, if they went to the correct tomb, if they did not hallucinate, if Jesus really did die, wow, what are we left with? I'll tell you what we're left with. We're left with over 500 witnesses recorded in the Bible who said they saw Jesus alive. We're left with a faith movement with a resurrection at its core that spread like wildfire. You're left with formerly timid disciples who are suddenly radically changed, refusing to back down on their claims, even in the face of horrific torture. You're left with these very same disciples one of whom had backed down in the face of a little servant girl three days earlier who questioned him if he was a follower of Jesus, and now he's ready to take on the world. So my question is is this. If you don't believe this story, what's your explanation? Something happened that completely changed their whole personalities and perspective and courage and confidence and the whole trajectory of their lives. I bought a book recently by Dr. Richard Swinburne. I didn't have any books previously by him. He's one of the most respected philosophy professors in the world. He's 85 years old now, still alive, still going pretty strong, even though he's officially retired from Oxford University probably in the top five most respected philosophers alive today, Dr. Richard Swinburne. And he did this study on the resurrection. He conducted a piece of what you might call investigative research, okay? What's the probability, was his question, that Jesus actually rose from the dead? And he applied what is called Bayes' theorem, Bayes' theorem. You can Google that, and trust me, you will get more information than you ever wanted on what Bayes' theorem is. And in his book, Dr. Swinburne, in this book called The Resurrection of God Incarnate, he publishes the research. I find it provocative. And Dr. Richard Swinburne, using this mathematical formula This eminent philosopher concluded the probability of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead having actually occurred is 97%. Some of you may be thinking, but would it hold up in a court of law? I believe it would. Kenan Westcott of Cambridge University made this statement. He said, indeed, taking all the evidence together, It is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. But you may be sitting there today and and you may be asking yourself, so what? 
I mean, I've heard all this stuff you've got to say, but what if Jesus did come back from the grave 2,000 years ago? Who gives a rip? So what? What difference does that possibly make for me today? Look, man, I'm living in the midst of a pandemic. I'm living in fearful times. I've got all kinds of questions about the future, not just the future of my country and the world, but my own future. What difference does it make? Well, here are some of the implications. If Jesus came back from the grave... He's not only the son of God, but that means his teachings are far more than just good moral teachings. That means Jesus' teachings and principles are ones that you can build your life on right now in 2020, right here in the Capital District or wherever you may be living. And if he did rise, if he's alive, it means he's available right now for you to have a relationship with him. And if he's alive, it means he conquered death. By the way, next weekend, we come finally to the message in this series that I really am more excited about than any other message. I mean that sincerely. It's one I've kind of been waiting for. I'm pumped about it. I'm gonna go down some roads I've never gone down before with this congregation or anywhere. As we talk about Can I believe in life after death? And the reason that's so important, the reason I'm so pumped about it is because guess what? All of us are gonna live 99.9999999% of our lives somewhere else. You'd better think sooner or later, is there life after death? Is this life all there is? That's a question everyone needs to have the courage to ask, and we're going to jump right into it next weekend. I don't want you to miss that. But if Jesus is alive, you know what? That means he's conquered death. And that means that he has the ability to forgive your sins, to adopt you into his family, to literally begin to transform you from the inside out. It means he has supernatural power to change your personality to tweak your habits and your relationships. And if he's alive, hey, this is good. If he went through all that unspeakable pain, it means he can identify with what you're going through right now. And it means that he's king of kings and lord of lords, and it means that he alone can give purpose and meaning to your life. Folks, I want you to know these are fearful times for so many. We have elections this week, and many of you are on pins and needles. You're wringing your hands with anxiety, wondering what all this means. Maybe you're fearful about your future. Maybe you're wondering what's going to happen with this pandemic and how it's all going to work out and how are we going to make it through. And there's so many legitimate questions. Amen and amen. But if Jesus is alive, here's my final word, and he is your Lord and Savior, are you listening to me? That means he's got you. That means, honestly, at the end of the day, it really doesn't make a ton of difference what the future holds because he's got you, 
and you've got him. And if God is for you, it's right, it's right. If God is for you, who can be against you? You are victorious because you're more than a conqueror in the risen Christ. Father, thank you for the glorious truth of the resurrection. We do celebrate it today. Our hearts are filled with thankfulness and gratitude because you have conquered death. Oh, may we proclaim this message fearlessly throughout the world. May we live our lives to get this resurrection message of a risen Savior to every man, woman, boy, and girl, every young person that we possibly can. And Father, I ask that you alone would be glorified in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.